one. I want to have this be the last episode to talk about um, religion. But I'm going to title this episode Cults because I feel like me getting this out, I can officially rest from religion for good. Because I'm going to take a very much needed break from religion. I'm not going to give a timeline because I don't have a time, date, or how long a duration. I'm, a, I'm going to just deal with it um, right now and then I can move forward with my life, alright? So, let's let's talk about it. Let's, let's just let, let's go. I'm going to start, I love starting off correctly, so here we go. Alright. So, IndieWeek.com In case you want to know what Indie means, Indie Week, this is based in Chapel Hill uh, Street, East Chapel Hill Street in Durham, North Carolina. All right. By Amanda Abrams, November 27, 2017, 7 o'clock a.m. East Coast time because it's North Carolina. How Raleigh's John Pavlovitz went from fired megachurch pastor to rising star of the religious left. Little by little, John Pavlovitz is becoming a familiar name among progressives, particularly progressive Christians. And he has Donald Trump to thank for it. Pavlovitz, 48, is a Wake Forest resident, minister at North Raleigh Community Church, and father of two young kids. He's also the writer behind Stuff That Needs to Be Said, a blog that calls out hypocrisy in plain language with Donald Trump and his ardent followers within the religious right, earning particular scorn. His style, compassion paired with a no-bullshit emperor-wears-no-clothes attitude, all informed by an all-inclusive brand of Christianity, has endeared him to millions of readers. This year alone, 23 million people have viewed his blog. He has over... 60,000 Twitter followers. His words have been featured in Slate, Cosmopolitan, and Quartz. But, as his recently released book, A Bitter Tale, explains, finding that voice was the result of a years-long process of soul-searching. A former megachurch pastor, Pavlovich didn't fully arrive at his new progressive mindset until a few years ago. It was a gradual deconstruction of my faith, he says, you look at one isolated area of the Bible, for example, and realize, well, if that doesn't mean what I was taught it meant, what other areas of my spiritual journey was I taking for granted? So you start digging into it and you find yourself exploring all areas of your belief system. Born in Syracuse to a middle-class Italian family, Pavlovitz grew up Catholic by his own description. He was a mainstream suburban child. His was a mainstream suburban childhood. He was raised with a sense of quote-unquote in-groups and quote-unquote in-out-groups. Those who were blessed by the Almighty and those who were not. I want to stop and say that I didn't fully arrive at my new progressive mindset until this year until right now, actually, right now, today, as I'm doing this episode, I fully arrived just now at my new progressive mindset. It was always there. I just had to consciously uh, acknowledge that I'm here and I'm here to stay, I'm never leaving. 
And I also had a gradual deconstruction of my faith. And I, I and I've explored all areas of my belief system, still do. And there are areas of my spiritual journey that was taken for granted by other people, not necessarily myself, according to my journey. And I was raised with a sense of in-groups and out-groups myself. I too was raised with the whole, those there are people that are blessed by God and there are people that are cursed by the devil. So I grew up with that myself. And I, I have a style on my podcast with Dr. Pavlitz. I have a no bullshit emperor wears no clothes attitude myself. I call out shittiness and hypocrisy in plain language myself. All right. People of color, gay people, trans people, queer people, queer as in not heterosexual, not cisgender, not the, not not a pejorative term in this context. Um, intersex people, hermaphrodites, poor people, uh, addicts, atheists, all were to be avoided or feared, or at least approached with great skepticism. He remembers. I added a little other, like I can't just say gay because. You have to incorporate gender and sexual diversity. Um, and also, anyone who is not Christian, not evangelical, were to be avoided or feared as well, or at least approached with great skepticism as well, is enough, is also what needs to be said. He remembers. Then he went to college at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, where he arrived with a scholarship to study graphic design. It's difficult to comprehend how my head did simply explode upon arrival, he writes in a book, bigger table. Like all the people um, that he was taught to avoid and fear and approach with great skepticism, those are the same types of people I was taught to avoid fear approaches, great skepticism myself in my upbringing. Uh, with no idea of what to expect, he was suddenly exposed to a wide range and colorful diversity beyond anything he could have imagined. Um, artists, dancers, musicians, gay, straight, trans, non-binary, uh, queer, intersex, hermaphrodite, um, non-Christians, non-evangelical, atheists, poor people, addicts, people he came to know and care about. Then his brother came out as gay. Pavlovitz had grown up with a vague discomfort about gay people, yet his first reaction at hearing the news about his brother was relief. And again, I want to make sure I said this, that he was taught to avoid poor people, be, a, be fearful of poor people, approach poor people with great skepticism. I was taught that too when I think about it. Um, he finally understood why his sibling had been so depressed and was happy that his parents embraced his brother's identity. 
Well, I'll tell you this. I'm a pansexual person. So I grew up with a vague discomfort about my own sexuality. It took me until this year to fully embrace it. I always knew that I just liked people, regardless of what they look like in terms of their genitals underneath. I knew that, but because I grew up in a black Southern Baptist evangelical upbringing, I was taught, you know, even though I never came out to, to them, you know, the statements they would make about people that were queer, you know, like myself, um, I was never homophobic. I was never transphobic. I was never lesbophobic. I was never biphobic. Never been those things. Never will be those things. It's impossible permanently for me to be those things ever. I had a big discomfort about my own sexuality, my own gender identity, which is pangender. I always knew that I, I didn't fit the gender binary, but I feel relieved in knowing that I'm 100% pansexual, 100% pangender, and I 100% embrace my pangenderism and my pansexuality. So, yeah, I'm no longer depressed about my gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, I, know, I, I no longer have vague discomfort about my sexuality and my gender identification anymore. Those two events were pivotal, says Pavlovitz. They opened his mind about who was worthy of compassion and love. Around, which I'm happy about, around the same time he was finding his way back to Christianity thanks to his impending marriage. Uh, late in the game, he and his fiance realized they wanted to have a church wedding, and the only institution that welcomed them was a small Methodist church in suburban Pennsylvania. They liked its coziness, so the Pavlovitzes continued as congregants after they were married. One day, a church leader actually would serve as the church's youth pastor. The fit was perfect, yet found his calling. After a stint in seminary and more time at the Pennsylvania church, the couple moved to Charlotte, where Pavlovitz got a job as youth pastor at a megachurch, the Good Shepherd United Methodist Church. He spent nearly a decade there. To be an integral member of a church family, Pavlovitz found was to be part of something greater than oneself, something warm and welcoming. The sense of belonging is powerful. I've always had a desire to be a part of something greater than myself. I always had a desire to be a part of something warm and welcoming because the sense of belonging is powerful to me too. Um, I have rediscovered Jesus and the Christ-likeness of Jesus. So I would say I've, I've never left uh, following Jesus. I just redefined it completely for myself. He had to find his way back at some point he left. I said, I'm going to alter what following Jesus means for myself. Okay? But it was also he learned stifling. That was my that has been my church experience for 19 years. I joined the church when I was nine, 28 now. 
The pressure to conform, to agree with derisive comments about Democrats or the quote-unquote gay agenda, to prioritize boosting attendance over addressing genuine lapses in faith was intense. He says, one of the other reasons why I left religion, church, and Christianity, not Jesus, not God, is because of the pressure to conform, like John, to agree with the rights of comments about Democrats, like John, to agree with the rights of comments about the quote-unquote gay agenda, right? So those are the other reasons why I left. Uh, piety, but not the Nazarene. All right. To prioritize boosting attendance over addressing Jane Webster and faith was intense, he says. That was another reason why I left the inst institutional religion and in the church house of worship is that reason itself to me. Instead of being a bomb for congregants' dark nights of the soul, church felt like an event where participants presented highly edited versions of themselves. Examples. Christian moral excellence is all about squeaky cleanliness, pretending that you're not fully human, pretending that you don't have sexual desires, pretending that you've never cursed, you've never drank alcohol, you've never smoked tobacco, you never smoked marijuana, you've never fornicated, you never had any homosexual urges and you've never questioned your own gender identity and you've never had doubts you never had skepticism you've never swept rape and molestation under the rug and that you're always peaches and cream sugar and rainbows gitchy gitchy ya ya da da la la land fantasy land fairy tale land utopia and everything's flawless, everyone's flawless, and the world is so beautifully grand all the time. My Elmo, vo Elmo voice. And that I've never, ever was tempted to leave church. I was never, ever wanting to beat the hell out of somebody. I was never tempted to fuck up someone who tried to fuck with my kids. I just never, ever enjoy adult comedy club humor. Mm -mm -mm. I'm never crass. I'm not edgy. There's no raw, uncut portions of myself. Mm -mm. I, I'm a holy roller. I'm always holy in thought, word, deed all the time. That was another reason why I left church, religion, and Christianity myself. And that old sense of in-groups and out-groups was still there. The visible line between a certain kind of Christian and everyone else. I left religion, church, and Christianity for that reason as well. I left because the, one of the in-groups was if you weren't economically prosperous, if you have trouble with affordability, oh, I was taught Republican Jesus. 
that was the out group I meant to say. That was the out group. The in group was if you were a prosperity gospel motherfucker like us, then yeah, you down with the cross. I was about that bullshit. So the out group was if your pockets weren't small as they say in hip hop, then you know you, you know you can leak with Beelzebub. But if your if your pockets are swole, then you and leave with you know with the whole bunch. Let's talk that shit. I'm just elaborating what I already said. Uh, was everyone struggling with doubt? Pavlitz didn't know, but he sure was. I think we all struggle with doubt. Some people just lie their asses off about it. Given his experiences in Philadelphia and his own family, except that gay people were his equals in dignity and worth. What else that the church was promoting was untrue about Muslims or women or poor people? That was a question as well as a reality like he had that caused me to leave religion, church, and Christianity. It was a terrifying realization. At that point, Pavlovitz was a respected pastor, someone who was supposed to have all the answers. By the way, no one has all the answers. If you have faith, only God has all the answers. If you're not God, you don't have all the answers. It's okay not to be God. It's okay to be fully human. It's okay to be fully human without crossing every T and dotting every I. God doesn't expect that of us, so why do we expect it of ourselves? It's senselessness. It's nonsensical. It's foolishness. Okay. There's a conspiracy of silence in churches, he explains. The ministers are seen as being so certain of their beliefs that the congregation doesn't feel comfortable coming to them without Another reason why I left church religion and Christianity. Meanwhile, clergymen and usually clergy and meanwhile, clergymen and usually men, hey, that was a big reason I left church. There are too many men in the pulpit, too many men preaching. Aren't able to confess the questions they themselves have. Yeah, clergymen and usually men, meanwhile, aren't able to confess the question they themselves have. That's why I left. I said I can't. I'm done. I'm done with religion, church and Christianity. I can't. Were they really acting like Jesus would? I'm going to answer the question. No. They were not. That's why I said goodbye. That was the big question. What's the goal to love everyone unreservedly? That's what that's what we're supposed to do. They didn't do that. So I said, you know what? I'm going to love everyone reservedly outside of the four walls called church. Goodbye. But instead of speaking his doubts, Pavlovitz hid his misgivings and got a job at a Raleigh church, at a Raleigh megachurch. By the way, a lot of pulpiteers hide their misgivings and doubts and skepticisms because they make the congregation their God. Church leadership is their God. The choir loft is their God. The pulpit is their God. The, pe- the preaching is their God. The theology is their God. The Christian denomination is their God. The ministry donors are their God. The, the congregation members are their God. Their family members are their God. Their The reputation community is their God. The church visitors are their God. The church guests are their God. The church attendees are their God. The church regular attendees are their gods. The guest preachers are their gods. Their relationship with other ministries of the churches are their God too. 
he asked that the INDY not get the church's name. And then one day in 2013, he was fired. You don't fit here. You've never been here, that, that pastor told him. In fact, Pamphlet says he did fit very well when he ministered to young people and families looking for comfort and connection. But he couldn't find a place for himself in the fabric of a church like but he couldn't find a place for himself in the fabric of a church that, like many in the US, had become increasingly corporate. It was skilled at creating really well-produced, age-specific Sunday experiences and quotations and quote-unquote and great faith-based entertainment. Those are some of the reasons why I left church. Those are other reasons why I left the church. Everything, you know, increasingly corporate, the great faith-based entertainment, really well-produced, age-specific, age-specific Sunday experiences. I said, I'm done. Pavlovitz is speaking more than his church, Pavlovitz says, but it never attempted to pull together people from all corners of humanity for the common purpose of glorifying God. And other reasons why I left church. Um, and that Pavlovitz realized was what his soul was yearning for. My soul yearns for that too. Being fired was a shock at first, and within 24 hours he came to view it as a blessing, one that allowed him to finally speak his mind. Me deconstructing Christianity and deconverting from Christianity at first was a shock, a, an unfathomable devastation that I never thought I would feel. But I now see it as a blessing because I get to finally able to speak my mind, my heart, my soul, my memory, and my body. He'd already begun to blog by then, but it had mostly been reserved for the church community. Now he began to write more freely. That's what I'm doing. I'm writing more freely. My book, and um, I'm going to be writing more other things. I think I'm going to start. I'm going to start a blog as soon as possible. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. It's that's a blessing too. In 2014, his writing project went viral. It started with a personal post in the form of a letter to his kid. If I have gay children, outlines the ways he would continue to love and support his son and daughter if they came out, that he would not keep their sexual orientation a secret, not quite the hope that they would eventually change. Well, I'm glad he said that because that's exactly how I would treat my offspring um, in terms of people becoming like my kids. Because let's face it, yes, I'm child free. But because of who I am, a lot of people are like, well, you're just going to have to make an exception to me because I want you to be my parent. So that would be the only way that I would be a parent. And I would um, treat my LGBT plus kids in that sense I just told you about the same way John Pavlovitz would treat his kids. <laughs> Legitimate sneeze, not, no, nothing offensive about sneeze. Um, but I would treat my offspring the same way, my informal offspring, you know. But it's formal to us, that's all that matters, you know. Almost overnight, millions of people read it. One day you're unemployed, next day CNN called, Pavlovich says. The shift was incredible. Suddenly he had an audience that was going to use it. 
I'm proud of him. Me. In 2016, another of his posts caught the internet's eye. To Brock Turner's father from another father, dressed the dad of the Stanford University swimming star who had been accused of rape. The father had asked the judge for leniency. Brock is not the victim here. His victim is the victim. The post begins to systematically, then systematically knocks down the father's excuses for his son's actions. But the site's greatest one-day readership occurred on November 9, 2016, the day after Trump's um, election. This is so good. This is good in terms of his post about Brock Turner. Trump's election is never good. Clarification. That day, a lot of people are searching on Google and they found me. It says, it helped that pop singer Katy Perry shared his post. This is why we grieve today on Twitter. The essay explained to a hypothetical clueless reader why Trump's election felt so profoundly painful to many Americans, including myself. I'm putting myself in this. It resonated. It resonated with me. Many of the readers who found him that day have stayed. Pavlovich says his readers come from all over the political and religious spectrum. That's apparently dozens or sometimes hundreds of comments on his post. That's me. That's, that's bad, bad heart too. But I think we all have the same pull toward protecting humanity, says. I am for that. If you're a person who believes in equality that transcends gender or faith traditions, you'll find something that appeals to you. That's that's me. That's me. Pavlovitz has always featured Christianity specific posts like why you may want to try church again or with the time you have left here, but most of his writings focus on current events, gun control, kneeling NFL players, sexual harassment and assault. And in the last week, Roy Moore, unabashedly liberal, I'm unabashedly liberal myself. Pavlovitz has come a long way from his roots as an acquiescent megachurch pastor. One can imagine posts like Rescuing Jesus from American Evangelicals. Yes, I feel that way. Or in Gun We Trust, God Bless the NRA. Ooh, get at him. That's right, Pavlovitz, get at him, John. Being written to some of his conservative former congregants. But Trump's election in particular has provided him with fuel. He's covered immigration, white supremacy, and health care. And often directly addresses Trump supporters and posts like, if you voted for Trump, you owe my children apologies. Woo! Hell yeah. Fuck yeah. He is unremitting in his derision for voters who he believes must take responsibility for the chaos and violence and COVID deaths that occurred since the 2016 election and since the 2020 election. Because before Joe Biden became president, guess who helped all the COVID deaths skyrocket? Trump. <laughs> Trump. Trump. <laughs> Trump support. Trump supporters. Avalon. <laughs> Pavlovitz says his comfort with questioning established dogma makes him a rarity in mainstream Christianity and has turned him into something of a beacon for others with doubts, a surprisingly large group of people. I'm a part of that community. I'm, a, I'm in the doubter community. I'm proud of it. Um, 
people say to me, I've been in the church my whole life, but you're finally giving me permission to wrestle with things, he says. That's the same permission I give myself. Right now, there's a voice of Christianity that seems loud because it has the White House behind it. But there's a large population in America that thinks this is nothing like the faith I entered into. That's how the fuck I feel. Some simply know in their gut, he says, that a religion of in-group and out-group isn't what Jesus was preaching. Thank you, John, for being common sense-minded. We share the same brain. I believe he's absolutely on to something, says Molly Warden, a UNC history professor focused on religion and ideology. There are changes in the way young evangelicals think about things like sexuality and gender roles, but they're also exhausted by the aggressive, confrontational style and old moral majority approach to politics. Me too. Me too. I can't. <coughs> I'm glad I sneezed because that shows that I'm allergic to bullshit. Now, I used to, I was a young evangelical who got tired of you know that type of style and approach to politics and you know I didn't think of sexual gender roles the same way the older evangelicals did when I was a young evangelical. And you do have a lot of those type of church people who would love to They've never had a bad day. They've never been frustrated with their spouse or their kids or people they grew up with. And they act as if I'm always dressed up. I'm always corporate America and my parents to the best schools. I lived in the most upscale of homes and everything was handed to me. I never had to work hard. And this is all the will of God. And by the way, I have perfect diction when it comes to my verbiage as well as my written communication. Lies upon lies upon lies. Lie, 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 lie. That was the reason why I left the church. Okay. Indeed, a number of polls have shown a decline in Christian beliefs among young Americans over the past decade. I am a part of that, by the way. Pavlovitz, a now a youth minister at North Raleigh Community Church, a congregation that welcomes people who are questioning the Christian they grew up with. I've soon and very soon I'm going to that church. It's part of a movement of progressive Christians, people my kind of people. People like North Carolina's Reverend William Barber and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, whose agendas have become more pointed as a result of Trump's taking up a necessary space in the White House. But the movement has been slow to coalesce in recent years Pavlovitz acknowledges. He thinks it's probably because liberal Christians view political power with disdain after all their Jesus was a homeless preacher. That is actually true. Jesus was a homeless preacher. That's true. An underdog who was executed for butting up against an established government. That's true about Jesus as well. Um, liberal Christians are my kind of people. 
and I want to help them, you know, look at political power as it can uplift at least the views as Jesus originally intended. But Nancy Petter, pastor of Raleigh's liberal Polar Baptist Church, ooh, another church I'm going to go to, thinks progressives often struggle with how to articulate their faith, since much of the vocabulary of Christianity has been co-opted by the far right. In the words of Reverend William Barber, we must stop letting people hijack language that really belongs to us. But in the case of Pavlovich, she says, one of the things with John is he's articulating the message is progressive, she says. He's found his own language. What I love that Reverend William Barber says is he doesn't go along with the evangelical version of conservative Christianity, which is saying so little about what God says so much and saying so much about what God says so little. Woo! That electrified my soul. Pavlovitz, he's found his own language. Pavlovitz isn't a radical. The topics he emphasizes like gay rights and women's rights were resolved by liberal Christians years ago. I'm so thankful for them. And unlike Barber and Wilson Hartgrove, he doesn't frequently talk about the tough, more structural issues of poverty and racism that can require radical reorder in society to remedy. I think all three of them should join forces. I, I want in on their, their unit. If they could all get together, I'm like, count me in. That's probably... But I, I count me in when it comes to any of them. I love all three of them. Well, that's probably part of why Pavlovich is so popular. He is a manageable liberalism, one that makes logical sense, but isn't too taxing. And yet, I don't think it's too taxing to change the world. I think it's too taxing to keep the world as fucked up as it already is. And to keep fucking up and already... To keep fucking up a... To keep fucking up more, a already fucked up world is fucked up in itself. And yet at a time when America seems to have taken a giant step backward how it views minorities and other vulnerable populations, you might be exactly the country the church needs. I say the same for William Barber and uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartford too. So yes, more reasons why I said bye church, bye religion, bye Christianity, I will never miss you. Okay, let me keep going. Okay, another thing that religion, church, and Christianity does not address, which is another reason why I left, is www.brains.org, 10 Most Notorious Suicide Cults in History, published by the editor. Halloween is on its way and feeble horror tales are being dished out left, right, and center. The following true stories, however, are not only filled with death and gore, they actually happen. Though often brutal and nonsensical, virtual suicide is real and has occurred throughout history. The motives behind mass suicide are varied. In ancient times and during the Dark Ages, it was common for entire groups of people to commit suicide to avoid subjugation to enemy invaders. Whilst in the past few centuries, virtual suicide has been seen within religious offshoots and collectors who follow cults of the occult. Uh, Papa Ten Valley, number 10. Uh, horror and pride were the pillars of ancient kingdoms throughout the world to the point where death was preferable to subjugation. 
1906, a Balinese ritual master site known as Pupatan was committed so that its practitioners would avoid being captured and enslaved by the Dutch invaders. The Raja commanded that all valuables be burnt, that everyone from the youngest child to the wives and priests be marched ceremoniously towards the aggressors. When face to face with the Dutch regiment, the head priest thrust a dagger deep into the Raja's heart, signaling the commencement of Pupatan. From here, the entire group simultaneously began to kill one another while the women mockingly flung money and jewelry onto the stupefied troops. Over 1,000 Balinese people committed suicide on that warm September afternoon, leaving little for the Dutch to do. Today, children are taught about Pupatan in days commemorated with make-believe street reenactments. Nine, Order of the Solar Temple, Switzerland, Canada. The Order of the Solar Temple, headquartered in Switzerland and operating in Canada, as well as the secret society that believes in the continued existence of the Knights Templar, their aims are to establish correct notions of authority and power in the world to prepare for the second coming of Jesus and to unify the Christian and Islamic faiths. Their activities include a blend of early Protestant Christianity and New Age philosophy. For many years, murders and suicides have been associated with the occult, with the cult, including the 1994 Canadian murder of a three-month-old boy who was ritually sacrificed because he was identified as the Antichrist. In October of the same year, 48 adults and children were found dead, shot through the head. Victims of a mass suicide in a Swiss underground chapel that was found lined with items of Templar symbolism. Eight, Hirakari, Japan. Hirakari, Japan. A true tale of terror involving blood, guts, and gore comes in the form of the Japanese ritual suicide known as seppuku or hierarchy as part of the samari bushido code of honor suicide by disembowelment was practiced to retain honor or lessen shame the individual would take a short sword known as a panto and plunge it into his abdomen making an excruciatingly painful lethal cut lastly to ensure certain death the samari's assistant would decapitate him it was a common custom during battle by means of which warriors avoided death or torture by the enemy, but it was also used to punish serious offenses. Although capital punishment was abolished in 1873, voluntary seppuku was recorded well into the 1900s. Notably, at the end of World War II, when numerous soldiers and civilians publicly performed seppuku to avoid surrender. In 1970, a group of rebels committed public seppuku at the Japan Self-Defense Forces headquarters after an unsuccessful attempt to stage a coup attack. Number seven, Sakari rebels Masada Israel. In 60 AD, a time when spears and catapults were the weapons of war, the Roman conquest of Judea forced 960 zealot Jews to first seize and then barricade themselves atop King Herod's fortress. The citadel built on a rock plateau in the Judean desert was still remains the site of ancient fortifications and palaces. The group lived there for half a decade, building homes and slowly expanding until the Roman siege of 72 AD when Emperor Lucius Flavius Silvius commissioned an enormous ramp with which to breach the walls of the fort and capture rebels. Little did he know that at its summit were smoldering buildings and the rotting cadavers of those who chose death over surrender. Only two women and five children survived to tell the story of how their people had been exterminated, summed up in the words of the zealot leader. Eliezer bin Yar, in his final speech, let our wives be killed before they are abused, and our children before they have uh, 
pasted as flavor. And after we have slain them, let us bestow that glorious benefit upon one another mutually. Number six, Jayahar Rajput, India. A similar story unraveling the deaths of the Indian subcontinent. Jayahar describes the practice of female mass suicide that occurred in Rajput kingdoms during Mughal times so that women could avoid capture and dishonor at the hands of enemy um, invaders. In the 14th century, Rana Padmini, the queen of, Ch of Chittor, C-H-I-T-T-O-R, Chittor, led all the royal ladies and their children to jump into a bonfire in order to protect themselves from the sultan of Delhi's lustful army. Whilst the, children, whilst the women and children would perform self-immolation, the men, fathers, husbands, and sons would charge against the attackers facing certain death a practice intended to protect both the sexes' honor. A second and third Jalhar took place in Chittor during the 16th century, which saw the obliteration of entire Rajput lineages. Five, self-immolation in Vietnam. Ritual suicide is not always connected to supernatural offerings or salvations logic, as is often, as has often been the case in contemporary times. In the case of Buddhist monks in the 60s, ritual suicide was a sign of protest against the Vietnam War. Beach Quang Dok Grizzly burnt himself to death in a busy Sayadin Road in 1960 to protest persecution of Buddhists by the South Vietnam administration. Despite being revered as a Bodhisattva, a being that has attained nirvana by the local Buddhist community, the government repudiated the action and punished the monks further. Many soon followed Viet Quang Dok's example by performing self emulation in public places. Although self-harm is rooted in the Buddhist religion, self-immolation was perceived as a selfless action by the monks, an act that spread the light of the Dharma and opened the eyes of those around them. For Heaven's Gate, San Diego, California. Then this next entry, this next entry is a real-life story of horror meets UFO sci-fi for the 1970s. Heaven's Gate cult based their belief system on a combination of Christian ideas of the apocalypse and elements of science fiction. If their ideas were to be believed, planet Earth was due to be wiped clean by supernatural force, and the only path of salvation was to escape to the next level. According to founder Marshall Applewhite, this escape could be achieved through an aesthetic existence, which meant detachment from family, friends, jobs, possessions, and other trappings of modern existence. In 1997, however, Applewhite announced a fast-track route to the next level, boarding a spacecraft that was trailing the comet Hellbach. On March 26th, when the comet was at its brightest, Applewhite 38 his followers committed suicide in order to abandon their terrestrial forms to gain access to the UFO. Three, the branch Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Waco, Texas. The branch, in quotations, is for it still survives, a Protestant sect, SECT, born in 1959 during the schism of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, when Florence Porta 
announced the second coming of Jesus on the summit of a hilltop in Texas. Following the failure of this prophecy, a number of prophets, in quotations, took center stage, the most prominent being Vernon Howe, later renamed David Koresh, who adoptioned the group into believing that he alone had the responsibility and authorization to prophesy at least this house of David. 1994, after allegations of illegal firearm ownership and child abuse, the ATF obtained a warrant to search the premises, but their offensive strategy was met with barricades and gunfire. After many days of fighting, the FBI was afraid of mass suicides and tried to corner the fathers with tear gas. However, the compound was set on fire from within, killing 80 people. Whether this was mass suicide or FBI cover-up remains unclear. Number two, movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, Uganda. The MRTC was an apocalyptic Catholic offshoot established in the 1980s after an alleged vision of the Virgin Mary ordering strict obedience to the Ten Commandments. The sect SCCT members spoke very little and sometimes adopted sign language to avoid bearing false witness to the neighbor. They prohibited sex to avoid adultery and they implemented bi-weekly fasting. As supposed year of the apocalypse drew near, Daily confession was encouraged to sell off of possessions was enforced and work in the field ceased. However, when Judgment Day failed to occur, the followers began to question the leaders' authenticity. And so a second doomsday was announced on March 17th, whereby all the 1,000 followers, adults and children, were invited to celebrate their imminent salvation. Though did they know that this would culminate in self-immolation and poisoning? And last number one for this article, People's Temple Jordantown Massacre uh, Guyana. The frightening, the, this frightening tale of mass suicide was carried out by members of the People's Temple, a cult born in the 1950s with the supposed objectives of practicing apostolic socialism. In the 1970s, a Caribbean missionary post was established in Guyana. Jo Jonestown was allegedly a benevolent communist community, the sanctuary for racial and social equality, headed by leader the self-styled prophet Jim Jones. However, Jones claimed to be the Messiah, applied mind control strategies to brainwash the sect and receive full and incontestable devotion, implemented torture holes to solve disciplinary, dis, implemented torture holes to solve disciplinary matters for both adults and children, and had sexual control over women and children. In November 1970, strange experiences began to occur, including the murder of inspecting California Congressman Leo Brian and a number of fugitives from the camp. Afraid of American retaliation, Jones brainwashes 912 followers into preserving the people's temple for eternity by committing the ultimate sacrifice. Poisoning themselves, they thus participated to the largest mass suicide in modern history. Those are other reasons why I left the church Christianity because of their refusal to address suicide, cult, suicide cults. Okay, and it does get worse, unfortunately. All right now. Ten Terrifying Evil Killer Cults by Robert Brennick. Cults are a mind-boggling aspect of civilization. The question always arises, how is it possible for people to get caught up in this type of madness? Even scares when the cult turns deadly. How could a group of people possibly go through with the murder of another person? Yet if the right people get together, it does happen and it's always terrifying. 10. The Vampire Clan 
Like many teenagers, 16-year-old Rod Farrell was obsessed with dark subjects, specifically vampires. However, Farrell took things a bit further by claiming that he actually was a 500-year-old vampire named Desago. While it's not unusual for people to roleplay, Farrell's dark exceptions would have tragic consequences. Though born in Kentucky, Farrell spent some time living in Eustace, Florida, where he met Heather Windorf at their school. Windorf was immediately drawn to Farrell and was fascinated by the vampire clinic that he ran back in Kentucky. The pair performed rituals in which they would drink each other's blood. After Farrell moved back to Kentucky, Windorf confided to him that she was miserable at home. Farrell soon came up with a solution to quote-unquote save Windorf. On November 25th, 1996, Farrell and his vampire clan, which consisted of Scott Anderson and two teenage girls, drove to Windorf's home. The girls took the car and brought Windorf to see her boyfriend so she could say goodbye. Meanwhile, Farrell and Anderson walked into the house where Farrell grabbed a crowbar and beat 49-year-old Richard Windorf to death as he lay asleep on the couch. The pair claimed they were going to leave 54-year-old Ruth unharmed. But she came across two, the, two, two, the two teenagers in her home and threw hot coffee at Farrell, which angered him into beating her to death as well. Farrell then burned his symbol, Farrell then burned his symbol, a letter B, into Richard Windorf's body before stealing his car and picking up the girls. Heather's sister found the bodies where she returned home from work that night. The vampire clan drove to New Orleans, but they quickly ran out of money. One of the girls called her mother to ask for cash. The police quickly tracked down the clan. All but Heather Windorf confessed to the crime. Farrell was given a death sentence, making the youngest person on death row at the time. His sentence was later reduced to life in prison. Heather Windorf was acquitted of involvement in the crimes after grand jury found she did not know what Farrell intended, what Farrell intended to do. Nine, the Fall Rivers cult. Operating in Massachusetts in the late 1970s, Fall Rivers cult was led by 25-year-old Carl Drew. Drew was a pimp who used Satanism to terrify the prostitutes who worked for him. He claimed to be the son of Satan himself and demanded that his orders be followed without question. The group may have had up to 10 members, all of them associated with the Fall River sex trade. Between 1979 and 1980, they held numerous ceremonies deep in their local woods. During these seances, during these seances, Drew would speak in a different voice in a different language. At first, the rituals involved sex and drugs, but things took a turn for the worse when Drew decided there needed to be human sacrifices. First, he died as a 19-year-old prostitute, Donna Levisky. Her hands were bound and her head was beaten in with a rock. Her body was dumped under the bleachers at a local high school. She was found on October 13, 1979. The second murder tied to the cult was that of Barbara Raposa in November 1979. Her body was found on a pile of stones resembling a crude altar. Her skull had been crushed and her hands had been bound. The cult's third victim was 22-year-old Karen Marsden, who was killed in February 1980. Marsden had been present at the murder of Levesque, which, Levesque, which apparently terrified her so much that she decided to go to the police. On that fateful night, Marsden's head was beaten with a rock for Drew broke her neck with his bare hands. Going to the cult, um, the vault team pro and prostitute Rob Robin Murphy Drew finally handed her a knife and ordered her to slit Marson's throat. She was then cut an X to Marson's chest and used her blood to mark an X on Murphy's forehead. Finally, Drew pulled and kicked at Marson's head till it came off. 
At the Marvin's death, the cult was rounded up. Two members, including Carl True, were given life sentences. True claimed he was innocent and has tried to appear the case many times. Robin Murphy testified against the rest of the cult members was given lighter sentence. The judge also allowed her to apply for parole after 20 years. In 2004, Murphy was released but was caught violating her parole and sent back to prison a year later. In March 2012, um, Murphy recanted her statement while applying, for another par- while applying for another parole. She claimed to have lied about the whole thing. However, many who worked on the investigation believe she was actually one of the masterminds of the crime. Number eight, the Carney cult. In 1991, William Anthony Alt was working for a traveling carnival in the U.S. His co-workers, Jimmy Pennick, Mark Goodwin, and brothers Keith and David Lawrence were involved in the satanic cult, and Alt wanted to join. When the cult rejected him, Alt turned to blackmail. He knew about the murder of an 18-year-old boy in Fulton County, Georgia, committed by Pennick and Keith Lawrence earlier that year. However, the cult had a different plan to ensure Alt would talk. On September 25, 1991, after the carnival had closed, the five men were driven to a secluded area and Alt was asked to lie on a makeshift altar. The four cult members then tied and gagged her. Keith Lawrence said a prayer to Satan before Pennick picked up a knife and cut Alt from his neck to his stomach. The men then took turns cutting his abdomen and chest, making an inverted cross. Finally, Pennick asked Alt if he was ready to die before slitting his throat. The four men later cut off Alt's head and hands and tried to burn them before throwing his body in a field. Then they took the money Alt had on him and went to Arby's. The police were tipped off to the location of the body by Mark Goodwin's father, and the cult was arrested a short time later. Pennick was given a 60-year sentence, but Keith Lawrence was given 20 years of David Lawrence, and Goodwin were both given eight years. When asked about the satanic connection, Keith Lawrence said that Satanism was like a drug. You get high, and once you're over it, you've got to reject even more than the first time. 7. The Santa Mirte Cult Santa Mirte, or Saint Death, is a folk saint in Mexican culture. She is the personification of death and helps people on their journey into the afterlife. She's often depicted as a skeleton in a gown and is used to remind people of their mortality. Most worshippers offer candy, cigarettes, and incense to her statue. The one small cult in Sonora province took things a bit further. It all started with the disappearance of 10-year-old Martin Rios in July 2010, followed by the disappearance of 10-year-old Jesus Martinez in March 2011. Both boys were known to frequent the house of Jesus' step-grandmother, Sylvia Merez. Police were already suspicious of Merez because of the parade of people visiting her house. They thought she might be running a brothel. When a 55-year-old woman disappeared, the police finally decided to search the property. Once inside, the police quickly discovered the bodies of the two missing boys, one under the floorboards and the other burned in the yard. Police also learned the body of the 55-year-old was burned in a different location. All three had been murdered by a Santa Muerte cult led by the 44-year-old Merez. Eight members of the cult who were all relatives of Merez were arrested and charged with the murders. Once in police custody, some of the accused confessed the murders took place at night by candlelight. The victims' wrists and throats were slashed on the altar. The blood was drained and collected in vows were being poured around the altar and sacrificed to Saint Death. Number six, Superior Universal Alignment. Starting in 1989 in the town of Altamira, 
Brazil, young boys began to go missing. The experiences continued for the next four years. It was estimated that 19 boys disappeared. None were older than 15. Only six bodies were found. All have been castrated with medical expertise and then left to die in the jungle. Another five boys managed to escape some after being castrated and went to the police. Yet the law did nothing to stop the police were finally able to bring charges against the Superior Universal Alignment Sect, led by a woman in her mid-70s named Valentina de Andrade. Other cult members included a doctor, a successful businessman, and a policeman. All prominent members of society that used their influence to avoid prosecution for years. As they were finally arrested, the three men were given, sentence, were given sentences which ranged from 32 to 77 years. In a move which astonished many, Valentina de Adrade was acquitted of the murders. The cult believed that children born after 1981 were evil and needed to be exterminated. They also believed the world was going to end and that a spaceship was soon arrived to take them to another planet. Number five, Black Jesus. Born in Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, St Stephen Tari began studying to be a Lutheran minister before eventually abandoning that calling. It's unclear if he chose to leave the school or if he was kicked out. He traveled deep into the mountains of New Guinea, where he started his own religion, calling himself Black Jesus. The cult grew to have about 6,000 members, despite the controversial use of flower girls in quotations. Specifically, chosen young girls who served as concubines for Tari and other cult leaders. At one point, Tari claimed to have 430 of them. In October 2006, Tari and members of his cult were apparently involved in a ceremony with 13 year old Rita Herman, whose mother had offered her up to Tari. During the ceremony, Tari raped Rita before stabbing her to death. It was also reported that Tari and the mother ate her flesh and drank her blood, although both denied. In October 2007, one set of villagers decided they had enough and attacked Tari's stronghold. They beat him and carried him out of the jungle tied to a log before handing him over to the police. Tari was subsequently convicted of four counts of rape but was never charged with the murder. But on March 21, 2013, Tari, along with about 49 other inmates, escaped from his prison. In August 2013, Tari was in a small village named Gaul where he apparently murdered a five-year-old girl and attempted to kill a teenage girl the next day. This time, the villagers took care of Tari themselves. Other, on August 29th, a mob attacked Tari and a 15-year-old follower. They hacked and slashed at him, even captured him before burning him in a pit of in the jungle. These things really have to be looked at because and these things have to be talked about because this is this shit got to stop. Okay. Prosecute these motherfuckers for us. Number four, the Russian teen satanic cult. In the mid 2000s, in the Russian town of Yaroslav, a group of disturbed teenagers led by Nikolai Ogolobayak started sacrificing small animals to Satan. 
When the cult members claimed that after they started praying, the Satan's life got better, pastors' wife events escalated to the level they did. In June 2008, the cult, which now consists of around eight youths aged 17 to 19, told their parents they were going to a music festival. Instead of for two separate nights, the cult lured four younger teenagers to a forest on the outskirts of the city. Once there, they forced the victims to drink alcohol before brutally attacking them. Early reports claim, slightly unbelievably, that each victim had been stabbed 666 times. The cult supposedly 666, the mark of Satan, uh, the number of Satan. The cult supposedly also performed acts of cannibalism on their bodies before throwing their arms and legs in a pit, into a pit with satanic markings on them. Their bodies were discovered about two months later, and six cult members were charged with the murders. Okola Bayak got the longest sentence at 20 years. A seventh cult member was deemed unfit for trial and was ordered to undergo psychiatric treatment. Number three, Jeffrey Longgren's farm. Jeffrey Longgren got his start as a minister with the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ like the Saints are. RLDS, a relatively large offshoot of the mainstream Latter-day Saint organization, also called Mormons. Longgren became a lay minister with the church in 1904, and his charisma quickly attracted followers. However, his habits soon concerned church leaders. For example, Longgren claimed to have found a new way to interpret the scriptures. Radical views, along with suspicions of theft, forced officials to remove Longgren from his position. After losing his position, Longgren moved his wife and their four small children onto a farm he was in Kirtland, Ohio. His new cult soon numbered around 20 people, and Lundgren became the absolute ruler of his little kingdom. His followers were forced to give him their paychecks and participate in mandatory weapons training. In order to maintain his rule, he listened on phone calls and banned cult members from talking to each other. His escalated when Lundgren announced that women could achieve salvation through sexual acts. He had them dance naked while he watched and masturbated. One of the families attracted to Lundgren's church was the Averys. In Kansas City, Dennis Avery had been a computer operator at a bank while Cheryl Avery taught preschool and cared for the three young daughters. The couple were strongly opposed to RLDS's 1984 decision to allow women to become ministers. Lundgren's fundamentalist teachings appealed to them so much that they quit their jobs, sold their house, and moved to Kirtland. However, once in Kirtland, the Averys were not very happy and were possibly planning to leave the cult. Sensing this, Lundgren's told his followers that they needed to perform a sacrifice. On April 16, 1989, Lundgren went to a town with Dennis Avery where he made him buy two handguns and a carbine. The next day, he had the Avery's visit the farm for dinner. After the meal, while the Avery's, while the Avery's cleaned up, Lundgren and another cult member named Ron Luff lured the family one by one to the barn. Their Luff ran a chainsaw to mask the sound of gunshots. Two days after the murders, the cult fled the farm. Their bodies weren't found until January 4th, by which the time the cult had fallen apart. The law eventually caught up with Lundgren and 13 members of the cult who were all charged with the Avery murders. Lundgren told jurors at his trial that he was a prophet of God and quote-unquote not worthy of the death penalty. The jurors disagreed and sentenced him to death. In the last-ditch appeal, Lundgren claimed he was too fat to be executed. The court shot down at appeal too and he was executed by lethal injection on October 24, 2006. Number two, the Ripper Crew. Starting on May 23, 1981, a series of brutal rapes and murders rocked the city of Chicago. The terrifying crime spree started with the disappearance of 28-year-old Linda Sutton. She was found 10 days later. She had been raped and stabbed to death, and her left breast had been removed. This was just the first in a string of 18 murders with women. In every case, the left breast was removed. 
The crimes were being committed by a group of four young men who were referred to as quote unquote the Ripper crew or quote unquote the Chicago Rippers. The group is led by a former John Wayne Gacy employee named Robin Gatch. The other three members were Edward Sprites and a set of brothers, Andrew and Thomas Cocoreles. The foursome would travel around the city and Gacy's van and either lure women to the van or outright kidnap them. They would take the victims back to Gates' apartment in order to sacrifice them. First, they took turns raping the victim before removing the breasts using piano wire. Apparently, they subsequently masturbated onto the amputated breast before dicing up and then eating it. This is all done while Gate read aloud from the Satanic Bible. The, their reign of terror came to an end when the group kidnapped prostitute Beverly Washington. They raped her, stabbed her, and removed her breast before dumping her by the railroad track. Amazingly, Washington survived the brutal ceremony. He gave the police a description of the men who attacked as well as the van they drove and crew was soon rounded up. Once in police custody, three members of the cult confessed their crimes all to the leader Robin Gates. As a result, Gate could not be charged with murder, but was given 120 years in prison for the assault on Washington. Thomas Coco Reyes was given seven years, while Edward Spritz and Andrew Coracolis were given death sentences. Spencer had his sentence commuted to life, while Andrew Coco Reyes was executed on March 17, 1999. One of the children of thunders. This is the last one. Who? Who? Brothers Glenn, who went by his name Taylor, and Justin Helzer were born into a Mormon family and were active in their church, each completing two years of missionary work. However, by his early 20s, Taylor had grown to dislike the confines of religious life. He was eventually expelled from the church for drinking, doing drugs, and engaging in extramarital affairs. In 1999, prior to Taylor's expulsion, the brothers met Don Gottman at a Mormon murder mystery. Dawn started dating younger brother Justin, although she seemed to be enamored with Taylor. A short time later, Taylor started claiming God was speaking to him and would shush people in order to hear what the Lord was saying. Apparently, God gave him a plan which involved starting a deeply unorthodox new religious movement. In order to raise money for his new religion, Taylor decided to start pimping out women and selling drugs. When that didn't work, he decided to straight up steal the money. Justin was a stockbroker. Taylor asked him for a list of possible targets. In order to steal the money, they needed a patsy to launder it through. So in the spring of 2000, Taylor started dating 22-year-old Selena Fisher. Taylor told that his name was Jordan and refused to give his last name. He also wouldn't tell her where he lived with meet her friends and family. The only person to see him with Selena was her mother, who happened to punt him twice. On July 3rd of 2000, the Children of Thunder went to the home of 85-year-old Ivan Steinman and his wife, 78-year-old Annette. The couple had been married for 55 years and had been clients of Justin Helzer. The cult forced the Steinmans to drink Rohypnol, Ro took them back to the brother's house, and made them write out two checks totaling $100,000. Dan Gottman, an incredibly misguided attempt at a disguise, went to the bank in a wheelchair while wearing a giant golden cowboy hat and tried to deposit the checks to an account Taylor had set up in Selena's name. 
However, the bank became suspicious and Don ended up leaving without the checks or the money. Back at the Helzer house, the cult had hoped the couple would die from the Bri Hope and all overdose, but they just lost consciousness, forcing the brothers to improvise. Justin slammed Ivan's head into the bathroom floor until he died and Taylor slipped and had stroke. Taylor then got Justin to cut up the bodies with an electric saw. Later, the trio prayed over the dismembered bodies. The cult's next victim was Selena. Taylor brought her to his home and invited her to lie on the floor for a massage before Justin emerged and beat her in the head with a hammer. The brothers then brought her upstairs to dismember her. Once in the bathroom, they discovered she was still alive, so Taylor slit her throat before cutting her body up with a saw. They stuffed the body parts from the three victims into different chin bags and threw them in the river. Taylor realized there were only one person who could tie him to Selena, her mother. Two days after Selena's murder, Taylor went to the apartment where her mother and her friend were sleeping and shot them both dead. The victims were soon reported missing. The trio was quick, were quickly arrested. Godman testified against the brothers and Justin was given a life sentence without parole. Despite guilty plea, Taylor was given a death penalty in 2010. Taylor tried to commit suicide by stuffing pens and pencils in his eye sockets, but only ended up blinding him. August two, on August 4, 2013, Taylor hanged himself in his cell using his bed sheets. He was 41 years old. I'm telling you, religion is a cult if people are not careful. There's another reason why I love religion, church, Christianity, the refusal to address evil killer cults. It still gets worse. Still gets worse. It hurts that I'm not lying. It would be a lot easier if I was lying. I'm going to just read all the cult stuff in the next episode. I'll just get out all the other reasons why I'm not religious later on today. Then I'll be done. This cult stuff, we got to deal with it. We got to deal with this shit. Um, Lovepanky.com. Shocking sex cults. Crazy facts that you need to know. The work by Paul Timothy Mangay. The word cult makes you think of crazy people prophesying about the coming apocalypse. But there are sex cults too, you should know about them. Sex sales. Come up with an advertisement with a well-shaped half-naked man and, one, and women touching one another. And you can sell anything from food, gadgets, perfume, and yes, even religion. Theoretically, two religions offer the same promise of paradise and afterlife, but only one offers all the guilt-free sex you can have as a bonus. People will most likely choose the latter. What is a sex cult and how does it work? Full disclosure, sex and religion has been here for ages. Before the major religions even become popular, our ancestors have treated sexuality and fertility as something of divine origin. Ancient Egyptian, Babylonian, Polynesian, and Croatianists were even involved sexual acts between deities as the origins of some aspects of the world. For them, sex is a natural and central part of life. What's the difference between ancient religion and what these sex cults have to offer? Mainstream and ancient religions treated sex as part of life and a means to an end. Sex cults, on the other hand, use sex as their main doctrine and as their form of worship. Some cults even use sex as a form of reward and as a means to control their members. Besides this, there are other signs to know that you found yourself in a sex cult. Cults have a small number of members and are pretty recent or short-lived compared to other religions. 
cults always have a guru, a master, or a teacher. Basically, a proper figure that's chosen to teach that having sex is the path to holiness. There will be money involved for membership fees, ties, and quote-unquote volunteer work to sell organic produce, work the communes farm, or sell the instructional videos. Sex cults will require your loyalty and will actually swear into an oath of secrecy. And the obvious that giveaway, sex cults will teach and ask you to do the weirdest and outlandish things, which are all beyond the average person's understanding. Five, infamous sex cults. There are a lot of sex cults out there, but due to their relative obscurity and small membership, we only know of a handful. Some of these cults occasionally find themselves in news headlines due to bizarre, outrageous, and sometimes illegal actions of their members. Number one, Rashnish Movement, currently known as Asho International Foundation. Rashnish Movement was founded during the early 1970s by Indian mystic and spiritual teacher Bhagwan Rain Rashnish after his stint as a philosophy professor in his native country. Similar to the Zayt Jesus of the era, his teachers advocated spiritual self-awareness, the celebration of life, creativity, and practice of meditation among his followers. He's also known for his open attitude about sexuality, which earned him the moniker of sex guru in quotations after his claims that he has had sex with more women than anyone in history. Polyamory, free love, and group sex are common occurrences within the cult, which can be quite alarming if only he's not a strong proponent of safe sex and contraception. Other than that, the group is mostly based on Rajneesh's cult of personality. The guru is said to have access to to wear only orange robes and a pendant with his portrait in it. He is also he, he is also claimed to be addicted to laughing gas, nitrous oxide, from which he gets his inspiration for his teachings and has owned almost a hundred Royal Royce automobiles. Number two, the family of nationals, also known as the Children of God. The Children of God cult is more infamous than the other cults. Founded by former preacher David Byrne in the late 1960s, the group is primarily based on a mixture of fundamentalist Christian theology, apocalyptic, apocalypticism, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories with an, unhealth, with an unhealthy dose of sex on the side. The group also became popular with the hippies during that era due to its rock music themed worship services and yes, free peanut butter sandwiches. The group was initially dismissed as a bizarre and harmless cult. After David Burke claimed himself to be a king and a prophet, he started preaching extreme ideas such as that, such as the fact that sex and masturbate, sex and masturbation were gifts from God and should be practiced all the time. There are also documented claims that David Burke and his partner had been molesting minors within their congregation and have even engaged in incest with their very own children. The cult is known for recruiting members by means of quote unquote flirty fishing, where female members recruit men by having sex with them. Number three, the Source family. The Source family is what happened when an ex-Marine hippie, James Baker, father of the father met a psych mystic and started to lean from, and started to learn from him. Originally a proto-hippie philosopher who operated a sandal shop and two health food restaurants, father of decided to preach an amalgamation of Indian spiritual philosophy in the late 1960s famous slogan of sex, drugs, and rock and roll albeit with more emphasis on the sex and drugs part. The cult got its name from the health food shop operated by Baker from where he started to teach meditation, breathing techniques, yoga, and veganism. Father Yacht attracted a lot of young followers from his teaching that marijuana-induced sex is the best way to achieve enlightenment. His cult had to fell apart after he died after leaping off a cliff with a hang glider that he didn't know how to use. Number four, the Wesson cult. 
The last thing called is something that would seem familiar if you watched True Detective in terms of bizarre beliefs and practices and its horrific end. The cult was named after its founder, Marcus Wesson, a former Seventh-day Adventist who decided to start a new religion based on a mixture of the Bible and vampire love. Wesson's cult included his immediate family and a few residents of his hometown in Fresno, California. Wesson thought that Jesus is a vampire and incest is the way to preserve their vocal purity, which eventually turned them into vampires. Wesson started the cult when he moved in with a woman in San Jose, California. He then quote unquote married the woman's 15-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, after having a child with the mother. The couple had 17 children with which he sexually abused regularly, starting when they were eight years old. The horrific cycle of abuse ended in a tragedy when nine of his children were killed after a alleged suicide pact within the cult. Wesson now faces death penalty for his crimes. Five, the branch Davidians. The thing that separates a sex cult from other cults is pretty obvious. A sex cult is when is where the so-called quote-unquote leader demands to have sex with the women of his congregation as a path to quote-unquote salvation. Such is the infamous legacy of the Branch Davidians under the leadership of David Koresh. The cult started as a former fundamentalist offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists on Mount Carmel, Texas. The cult took a radical approach to their teaching after the rise of their charismatic leader. David Koresh demanded that all males become celibate and offer up their wives and daughters to him as his quote-unquote spiritual wives. Koresh allegedly had indiscriminate sexual relations with the female members of his congregation, both young and old. Because of his charisma and control over the activities of the members, Koresh gained the absolute loyalty of his followers. And he used this control, and he used this control during his tragic end at the Waco Sage, where he and some of his followers were killed during a raid by Texas law enforcement officers. Cults are everywhere. They're based on common recurring themes. Borrowed doctrines from other religions, the end of the world, aliens, recreational drugs, and sex. But it's best not to fall prey to cults that will ultimately control your life and probably actually do something against the law. See, another reason why I left religion is to refuse to address sex cults. Religion can be a sex cult if you're not careful. Religion can be a killer cult if you're not careful. Religion can be a suicide cult if you're not careful. Religion can be a cult if you're not careful. Okay, Ooh, this is this is this is really rough. Um, this is extremely extremely rough. Um, I'm gonna take a break, and my last week episode will be the next one that I do, which will be later on tonight. 